Heavenly Father, you are an awesome God, and we thank you for your holiness. We thank you for your holy word. It reveals who you are, your righteous ways, your perfect laws, and we ask that you would help us to submit to your ways. Make us more into Christ. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would be with Pastor Mike this morning and help him to preach your word in boldness, with clarity of thought, in spirit, and in truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. We at Cornerstone believe very strongly in preaching the whole counsel of God. It is our regular practice, Pastor Adam and I, to begin um, a new series at the beginning of the book of that Bible, uh, the beginning of the book of whatever book of the Bible it is that we're preaching from, and to work our way through that book of the Bible. And that was my intent uh, today to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but on Friday uh, there was a uh, historic uh, landmark case by the U.S. Supreme Court. Unless you've been in a cave, you've all heard about this, right? So just to state it, what happened on Friday is the U.S. Supreme Court found within the United States Constitution the right for a man to marry a man and for a woman to marry a woman. It is a decision, I think, that is similar in many ways to the decision uh, in 1973, uh, Roe v. Wade, where the court found in the Constitution a right for a woman to take the life of her unborn child. There have been a a variety of responses uh, to this decision. Let me share a a couple of them with you. The Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice uh, John Roberts said this, dissenting opinion, the court invalidates the marriage laws of more than half the states and orders the transformation of a social institution that has formed the basis of human society for millennia. 
for the Kalahari Bushmen and the Han Chinese, the Carthaginians and the Aztecs. Just who do we think we are? Another response from the uh, chief counsel from the Alliance Defending Freedom. He wrote this. Today, five lawyers took away the voices of more than 300 million Americans to continue to debate the most important social institution in the history of the world. That decision is truly unfortunate. Nobody has the right to say that a mom or a woman or a dad or a man is irrelevant. There are differences that should be celebrated. Millions of Americans still believe that. What I want to do this morning is to ask the question, how do we respond to this? And by this, I don't mean so much the Supreme Court decision, as I do the reality that you and I have family members, have friends, possibly, uh, classmates, employees, bosses, clients, patients who are gay or lesbian. Do we not? Do we have? Raise your hands. We, we, we live in that, in that world. So what I want to do is say not so much how do we respond to that decision, but how do we respond as followers of Jesus in this culture that we live? And so instead of looking at 1 Corinthians 1 and beginning, we're going to jump ahead to 1 Corinthians 6 today. We'll be going back to 1 Corinthians 1 next week. But before we get into God's Word, I want to pray once again. Let's bow our heads together and ask God to speak to us. Father in heaven, Lord, so many, uh, so many emotions uh, going on as we think of this decision. Emotions in my own heart and I'm sure even more diverse emotions represented in each of our hearts today. And so we, we want to and we need to hear from you. And so I ask that the Holy Spirit would be at work through the Word of God, through supernatural guidance by the Holy Spirit, through grace. Lord, I'm so aware that, that we need to respond, each of us, in, in a variety of ways depending on, on where, we, uh, where we are when it comes to this today. So, so speak to us and change us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you would turn there, um, fast forwarding here to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I want to begin reading verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So a few comments on these verses. I've chosen this passage in light of what happened on Friday, in light of, of two words in this vice list, this list of 
sins. In those two words, uh, the NIV translates male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders. These two words are actually much more graphic than what's here. And your translation probably says something different because translators don't really want to put in here. It's it's, um, very distasteful. Uh, What these two Greek words mean are are not in debate. They have to do with active and passive activity of homosexual men. And if you look at the uh, footnote, not in the ESV study Bible, but in the footnote of the ESV translators, that footnote nails exactly what is is being talked about here. So this is the reason I I, I, uh, chose this passage. In a different context, we would talk about each of these things in in a more broad way. Uh, but this list is, um, is, a, is a serious list and an important list. And I want to share with you my own personal experience as I, for many years, how I would read passages of the Bible like this. I read them wrongly. I read them with an us and a them mentality. I read passages like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, thinking about those of us who know Jesus are one way, and those who aren't are another way. And here are a bunch of different ways, 10 I think listed in this vice list, of of the way those people are. I am not like this. They are. They're not going to inherit the kingdom. That is not at all the way to read this passage. And if you're like me, you maybe have made this transition as well. Notice um, in verse 9, this little phrase, do not be deceived. Okay, That word deceived, or however it's translated in your translation, is very important. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and they have a variety of issues. A whole bunch of issues that have been going on. And he is telling them, and he is telling us today, that we ought not to be deceived. This is not a a word for those outside the church. This is not a word for those with rainbow flags outside the Supreme Court uh, building celebrating this week. That is not who this passage is directed to. This passage is directed to Corinthian believers who have been deceived and are calling themselves Christians, but continue to live without repentance in sin. So we have to back up to get this. So let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 6. Here's one of the issues that's going on in Corinth. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment? instead of before the saints. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters... Appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. 
Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another. And this in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat, you Corinthian believers. You yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers. Here's the context that verses 9 and 10 comes to. Now, if you didn't catch it all, let me summarize what's happened here. What, what's probably, what, what is going on here in Corinth is we have two Christian men in the church. One of them likely is very well-to-do and has very good legal counsel, very good attorneys at his access. And there has been some kind of dispute in business about money. And he has used his money to hire the best attorneys and to go to court to get money out of this other brother. Now, if you're like me, I can get Paul saying, hey, don't do that. Find anybody in the church that can help settle this dispute. Don't do that, especially the guy that's suing. That makes sense, right? You get that? You guys with me? You guys awake today? So so I get that. But Paul, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, goes way beyond that. He says to the guy who's being sued, who's being unjustly sued by this brother in the church, he says to him, be wronged, be cheated, because you care about the reputation of Jesus and the gospel more than you care about being sued wrongly by the other guy in the church. It's in that context that Paul says the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. He ain't talking about people with rainbow flags outside. He's talking about Christians who haven't lived repentance. And he goes through this whole list of things. And at the end of the list... In verse 10, he mentions thieves or the greedy. And he is saying that brothers who live this way, they're not fighting the fight of faith. They're not struggling through their sin. Their Lord is money and I'm going to sue. They are being deceived. And he's saying to the Corinthians and he's saying to us, make sure you, Christian, are not being deceived. Look at verse 11. He says, and this is what some of you were. No comments on my microphone. Anybody catch that? Sorry. And this is what some of you were. That was a bad, bad break there. This is what some of you were. Verse 11. What, what, what is he referring to? He's referring to this list. The Corinthian church is primarily made of people who used to live in all of these different ways. 
Sexual immorality, homosexuality, drunkenness, slandering, greed. They used to live this way. That is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, and you don't live this way anymore. You still struggle, you still fight, but this isn't who you are. And these two brothers, particularly, actually both of them, these two brothers who are going to court, need this warning. So, in light of this uh, Supreme Court Supreme Court decision, how do we respond? We respond uh, by repenting of our own sins, not highlighting the sins of others, particularly those outside the church. We should expect them to sin. They don't know Jesus. We should expect them to be celebrating outside the Supreme Court. They don't know Him. They're doing what is right in their own eyes. So our focus should not be, and I don't know to what degree you've had to come out of Phariseeism. One of our beloved elders uh, said, uh, we're all recovering Pharisees. I'm certainly one. And the Lord over the years has had to open my eyes on how to read passages like this. That the church needs to have people in it who would be unjustly sued by another Christian and say, the Lord's going to provide for me. You can take my money. I'm not going to bring the name of Jesus and the gospel down. So this is the first response. How do we respond? By repenting of our own sins, not highlighting the sins of others. Another way to respond to what happened on Friday, and more than that, what I'm really saying is how we are to respond to this cultural shift and to the everyday reality of life that you and I have of interacting with gay and lesbian uh, men and women. Uh, We need to uh, respond by remembering that our citizenship is not earthly, but it's heavenly. Our citizenship is not in the United States if we're reading our Bibles, Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. This same truth is in uh, Hebrews 11. The heroes of the faith are being described here. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance and they admitted they were aliens and strangers on the earth. So we we shouldn't be complaining and whining about what happened on Friday because we're aliens and strangers here. If I was preaching this message in France and they had the same thing, we would be saying our identity is not in being Frenchmen and Frenchwomen. If we were in Canada and the same kind of thing happened, we'd be saying our identity is not in our Canadian citizenship. Our identity, our home is in heaven and we are aliens and strangers here on earth. This passage goes on 
People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We're longing for a new home. And where where goodness and purity and holiness should reign is in the church. And we shouldn't really expect it to reign out there. Now, we have this tremendous heritage. And so many of us, particularly the older among us, we, we have this, this kind of affection and longing for a so-called past day where America was, was Christian. But we, we, those, day, those days are gone. Fred and I were talking before the service today. Fred just turned 90 years old, praise God, this week. And... Uh, And Fred, who is 90, he and I were talking. Fred understands that the world is not coming here on Sunday mornings anymore. Those days are gone. And we have to to understand this cultural shift that has, has taken place. And so we need to remember that our citizenship is not in the U.S., It is in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our identity. We are aliens and strangers here. This world is in our home. So another response to this is to display the gospel. Display. We respond by displaying the gospel to those with same-sex attraction. We need to display the gospel to them. Joe read from Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. When we read a passage like this, and we all talk about being like Christ, one of the questions that we should ask ourselves is, am I likely to be someone who might be accused of eating with sinners, with unclean people, with the mafia and the prostitutes in Jesus' day. That's what he did. The tax collectors were like the mafia in in organized crime in America today or in, in the past decades. This is who Jesus ate with. And so we should ask ourselves a question, if I am going to be like Jesus, might I be accused of eating with whoever the unclean people are today, who I would say include our gay and lesbian neighbors? If we aren't being accused of that, we may need to do a check on our lives. And how much we really are like Jesus. We need to display the gospel to whomever it is, including those who are gay and lesbian. John chapter 4, Jesus there uh, encounters the Samaritan woman. 
You know this story. He's traveling through Samaria. The Jews in general, Jewish culture in that day, they were Jewish supremacists, like white supremacists, like the one we talked about last week. In that day, there were Jewish supremacists. And the culture was the Samaritans are inferior. We don't talk with them. Not only do we not talk with them, we certainly don't interact with them around a table. In John 4, John, the gospel writer, gives the reader a clue that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We, we don't touch them or eat with them because we would become unclean. So Jesus ends up at this well at the hottest point of the day as he's traveling through Samaria. And there's a Samaritan woman there. You know this story. Women wouldn't normally go at the hottest time of the day to the well. And Jesus says to this Samaritan woman, she, she, he says to her, will you give me a drink? He's saying to this person who the religious culture says is inferior every one of them, particularly a woman. And if you eat with them, you are unclean and have to go through ritual purification stuff to, to come back and, and worship with us. Jesus straight away goes to her and asks her for a drink, which means he's going to put his lips on the Samaritan woman's cup. She's shocked. And they have this interplay. Jesus is modeling for us how to display the gospel with people that we might think of as unclean. They're not unclean. They are the people that we need to love and show the gospel to in a special way. The poor, the needy, the marginalized, the gay, the lesbian especially in the foothills. In certain places, they, they, they run the culture. They don't do that here. And so especially here, we need to reach out to them. And we need to literally put our lips on their cups and our mouths on their forks in their homes as we have befriended them and have eaten meals with them. My freshman year of college was at Texas Tech University. Transferred to Westmont and then graduated from there. That's where I met Michelle three years at Westmont, one year at Texas Tech. At Texas Tech, my freshman year, I lived in an all-guys dorm. A thousand guys lived in my dorm. Two L's and a cafeteria in the middle. No girls came to our cafeteria. If you have a girlfriend, you don't bring her to a cafeteria where there's a thousand guys eating. You know what I'm talking about? There's no girls. If you had a girlfriend, you might go to her dorm cafeteria to eat, but they didn't come to ours. So it was quite an environment in there. And it was crowded. And you often couldn't find a seat. Except, out of this about a thousand guys, there was one guy who was gay. 
And you could find a seat at his table because no one would sit with him, including me. Because if you sat with him, then you were gay. So you don't sit with him. And so, uh, one day, my resident assistant, his name's Brian, sharing with the worship team before this morning how I've been reflecting on this. This is the part I've been reflecting on the last few days. What, how much the Lord has used Brian in my life, my resident assistant, my freshman year. The resident assistant is the guy who keeps the rules in the dorm on your floor. He had one on each floor. And uh, Brian was a believer. He was an architecture major. We call it architorture. They had the hardest work of everybody. They're up all night, these projects. He's an architecture major. He's a believer. He's a resident assistant. But he knew that his main mission was to make disciples. That's what his mission was, Brian. So I maybe have shared this with you before, but we'd have, we had Bible study and prayer one morning a week. And one of the things I loved about Texas Tech was the rec center. It was open till midnight. I, I got there. We can play basketball until midnight every night. There'd be a couple courts, basketball game going. So I'd be, I should have been studying, but I was playing basketball till midnight almost every night I could. So Brian would come in my room on Bible study prayer morning, and he would wake me up quietly. My roommate's sleeping right across the way. He'd wake me up. But he knew I would just go right back to sleep. So he would actually get me up. I'd put a T-shirt on and a hat on and walk down to his room. And we would, and we would get, otherwise I'd just keep sleeping. This is the kind of guy Brian was. So why am I telling you about Brian? So one day, I walk into the cafeteria, and Brian is sitting with the gay guy. You know what my first thought was? This is confession. You know what it was. Brian's gay. Brian is gay. That was my first thought. Brian was showing us how to be Jesus to the one gay guy out of a thousand people. There were probably a hundred, right? But there's only one we knew that was gay. Brian was showing us how to be Jesus to that guy. And I'm ashamed to say it took me some time to realize that. And I actually thought Brian was gay. He was a little, you know, he didn't hunt. <laughs> Let's put it that way. You know what I mean? I shouldn't have said that, but. <laughs> Brian was doing what Jesus did with the woman at the well with this guy. With the woman at the well, Jesus eventually says to her, go call your husband and come back. You know the story. He doesn't ignore her sin. And we shouldn't ignore the sin of, of gays and lesbians. But before he brings up her sin and repentance, he drinks from her cup. And he loves her the way Jews don't normally love Samaritans. 
And we have entered an era of our country where we should be okay with not being proud of it. I hate to say that. We're aliens and strangers. This, this ain't our home. And what we need to be boasting in is Jesus in this kind of way where people see our love. And some people are not going to respond to us the way the, the Samaritan woman responds to Jesus with faith. We're going to get persecution. And then we'll see that our lives are kind of lining up with the Bible more than they are now. But some of those people will come to know Jesus. Our men's group read read a book about a woman. Um, her name's Rosaria Butterfield. Who this a lesbian woman who went through this process? I'd recommend the book to you. Did you bring any of those? We forgot. We forgot to bring those, but you should read that book. So, how do we respond to all this? Did I put the last thing up here? Displaying the gospel, and then sharing the gospel with those who have same-sex attraction, or anybody. I'm talking about this because of what happened on Friday but especially with those that we might ostracize, that the church may marginalize, that we may look down upon. Those are specifically the people that we should go after with love and invite to our homes. Display the gospel and share the gospel. Close with these words from Tim Keller. He says, So there may be two kinds of churches... One kind says to its community, the Foothill community out there, you can come to us, learn our language, our interests, and meet our needs. The other kind says to the Foothill community, we will come to you. We'll learn your language. We'll learn your interests. We'll meet your needs. Which of these approaches imitates the incarnation? Which of these approaches imitates Jesus in Samaria at the woman at, with the woman at the well? Which of these approaches imitates Jesus who went to dinner parties with the mafia, who hung out with prostitutes? We need to go to them and to love them for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we confess to you that we have in many ways misunderstood what it means to be separate and holy, and that our churches and our lives and our hearts and our thinkings, our thoughts, often represent the Pharisees and the Sadducees more than Jesus. We pray that we would love Jesus so much and not care about money that if we were unjustly sued by a brother that we'd be willing to just be wronged so that the gospel is not brought low. We pray, Lord, as we interact with men and women who are gay and, and lesbians that they would see our love for one another that they would see our love for them pray that we'd be willing to eat off their plates and use their forks and hang out with them and invite them to parties 
and to meals at our home. We ask, God, that you would help us to be like the real Jesus and to be able to see the fake Jesuses that we've had in our minds and our hearts that I certainly have over the years. Help us to see your word in Jesus' name.